Welcome to The Rights of Others, the podcast where we explore human rights abuses and efforts to seek accountability, transparency, and access to remedy for victims of such abuses. We do so through a conversation with those who have devoted their lives to protecting and defending the rights of others, talking about what they're working on and how and why they chose to pursue their fight against corporate injustice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Rights of Others. Uh, I'm Seema Joshi, and thank you for joining myself, Olga, and Raza uh, on the program today. Uh, we are very pleased to have join us Dan Leader, who is a barrister and partner at the law firm Lee Day. He has over 20 years of litigation experience. He specializes in international human rights and environmental litigation with a particular focus on group actions by claimants from the developing world. Dan has extensive experience in bringing cases against companies, uh, pursuing complex group actions, um, and mass tort claims, as well as cross-border disputes and jurisdictional issues. Um, and Dan has been really leading on some key cases that have been brought in the UK, really pushing the boundaries from a human rights perspective. So um, Dan, welcome to the Rights of Others. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, It's a great pleasure to join you. <laughs> great. Well, it's great to have you. Um, we, you are the first, I believe you're the first practicing uh, lawyer, solicitor that we've had actually on, on this podcast. So uh, it is with uh, real interest that, um, you know, we look forward to hearing your perspective, you know, on, on, uh, on sort of, I guess, the role of law and particularly legal cases in pursuing this agenda of, of sort of strengthening the rights of people, you know, around the world. So with that, um, I'd like to ask you, um, please tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment. Uh, so Lee Day is uh, an unusual law firm because we've got a large international department which specializes primarily, not exclusively, but primarily on corporate accountability and business and human rights cases. And there are about 40 of us who are working on a range of cases around the world, um, many of which are being litigated uh, tooth and nail by multinational companies, and so are going all the way to the Supreme Court, and are changing the law, um, generally for the good. <coughs> so uh, what we essentially do as a law firm um, and as lawyers is take uh, cases that are brought to us to uh, by communities or individuals, mostly from the developing world, who suffered some appalling environmental or human rights abuse, and uh, provided it's clear that there's no prospect of justice in the local jurisdiction, we will then try and get justice for them in the UK courts. Uh, and generally for that to happen, there needs to be a strong link with the UK parent company and evidence that parent company was directly involved in some way in the abuses or, or environmental disasters in question. So that's a kind of thumbnail sketch of what we do. 
Great, great. And and uh, I think it's quite interesting because there's, you know, I can imagine that this is challenging work because, you know, de facto of the cross-border nature of the work, you know, and, and you referenced an interesting point about, you know, if, if, if claimants, um, you know, or, or, or people who are affected by harm cannot bring a case in their own country, then that's when um, sort of you've stepped in. Could you speak a little bit more about specific cases, um, you know, where this has happened and, and maybe a bit of the types of, a bit more information on the types of actions that have been brought? Sure. So uh, I've got so many examples I could share with you. Um, one big example uh, is the Niger Delta and uh, environmental cases against Shell uh, that has an appalling, it's an absolutely appalling environmental record in the Niger Delta. And um, the communities uh, who essentially host Shell infrastructure and un under whose feet the oil is extracted and then sold at enormous profit by Shell um, are in a state of absolute environmental catastrophe. And I'm, I'm using, it's not hyperbole, I mean, the, the state of these communities is just um, indescribable. Uh, people living, you know, essentially on oil slicks, which have been left uncleaned for decades. And the, the example I'd like to give is the case of the Bodo community, which is a fishing community of about 30,000 people in River State, Nigeria. Um, they approached us with regard to two spills in 2008 that totally devastated their creeks and therefore their way of life, because these are rural fishing communities and farming communities, um, and they could no longer fish or farm. Uh, and they instructed Nigerian lawyers uh, for two years, absolutely nothing happened uh, in the Nigerian context. Mm. Um, and that's for good reason. That's because the Nigerian system is so uh, un unfriendly to poor claimants. Um, that it's almost impossible to get justice locally. Cases, on average, against oil companies who fight them tooth and nail, take about 25 years to 30 years to work their way through the system, by which, case, by which point most people have either forgotten about the case or are dead. Um, and so the result is impunity on a scale that's uh, extraordinary, and communities who've been left in, in a state of devastation and so the Bodo community instructed us to sue the parent company in London. So we sued Royal Dutch Shell. And to our surprise, Royal Dutch Shell said, look, uh, we're gonna admit liability for these spills. And we are going to um, submit Shell Nigeria to the UK jurisdiction, provided you let Royal Dutch Shell off the hook. So we said, fine, we don't, care who we're suing as long as this is resolved. And we don't really trust the Nigerian legal system. So this has to be done through the UK um, legal system. And uh, there was a process of about four years of uh, expert reports, mediations, various court hearings. Um, and initially, and this is an important fact that I forgot to mention. Initially, Shell offered to settle the claims with the community for $4,000, um, a spill that totally wrecked their way of life, potentially for generations. 
uh, behind the backs that was offered of their Nigerian lawyers. That was rejected. And in the end, the claims settled for 55 million pounds. Uh, and that was money that was then distributed directly to 15,000 um, individuals who represented who were the kind of uh, claimants in the case. Um, and uh, it, was in, it enabled Bodo to rebuild, to get back on his feet economically. Uh, to start people to start businesses, to find alternative ways of, of making a living. But very importantly, we're also fighting for cleanup, and uh, the we've been um, seeking uh, injunctions to force Shell to clean up, and that has led to the first ever internationally organised cleanup mechanism, which has got the Dutch government involved, the Nigerian government involved, um, Shell obviously. Um, and uh, some very, very good international experts on mangrove swamps, uh, et cetera. And as a result of this, we've got the first ever, out of the hundreds of communities who've been devastated by shell, we've got the first ever cleanup process. Um, but it is difficult and um, essentially, you know, shell, like many multinationals, will do nothing unless they have a gun to their head, um, metaphorically, obviously, a, a legal gun to their head. Uh, and so we keep on having to go back to court to force them to clean up, to make sure it's, it's on track, that uh, it's being done to the right standard. Uh, but it is an example of how this litigation can um, tackle deeply, deeply ingrained corporate impunity. Um, and uh, something that has really helped thousands of people uh, in a very difficult part of the world who were just used to living with uh, uh, total corporate impunity. Um, so that's an example of the kind of case. I've got many others, but I, yeah. I, let me know if you want, yeah. to, if you want me to share it's... those. <laughs> No, I think, I mean, Dan, I think there's so many questions that I'm sure, you know, Olga and Raza, you know, have in relation to this. I mean, what you've shown, you know, for me is an, a really an excellent example of how, you know, a legal action, a cross-border legal action can have a positive um, sort of impact on the ground. So there, I guess there's two, there's two elements, of course, right? It's the precedent, it's, it's the, you know, it's the, um, I guess the, um, the uh, deterrence factor as well, potentially, that if companies uh, know that if they actually, you know, do commit this type of damage and harm, that actually they can, there can be a legal case brought against them and they can be put in a position where they will have to act and, you know, they'll have to pay up, they'll have to do something that makes them accountable for the mess that they made. Um, I mean, I, I have a quick question on, on, I guess, two to reflect on. So one, you, you sort of had, had referenced the fact that Shell initially sort of offered this um, $4,000 settlement. And then later on, of course, or, you know, you came back and they were pushed to basically offer a lot more. And then there was this point where Shell admitted liability. You know, I wondered if you could speak a bit more as to what shifted, you know, what, what changed um, sort of the company positioning on this. Um, and then the second question I have is, and perhaps Olga is going to build on this question a bit more. I'm trying to read her mind. Uh, is, you know, what what is the Boder case 
So what is it? What is it? How can this be so used and create a precedent for other cases? You know, what does this mean for other communities? It's amazing that this cleanup procedure has been put in place for the Bodo communities, but there are so many others. Uh, what does it? What does it mean around the world? What does this mean? You know, for them. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, what this means, I think, is. Um, that the courts are where parent companies are registered and domiciled are increasingly willing to hold those parent companies to account for the sins of their subsidiaries uh, in a way that 30 years ago it wasn't really conceivable that this could be the case. Um, but increasingly we're seeing in the English courts uh, a willingness to do that, most recently reflected in the Supreme Court case in Fedanta, um, which I can talk about, which is a very important precedent which has come, come out um, last year. And so the traditional uh, economic model of a lot of multinational companies who create a web of different legal entities and assume that they can be um, immune from any form of legal liability just simply because they are distinct legal entities is, is being now challenged successfully by the cases we've brought. Uh, and so that means that parent companies not only have to deal with the, the various soft law initiatives that are emerging in the business and human rights sphere, like the UNGPs and the OECD guidelines, voluntary principles, so on and so forth. But they also have to uh, deal with the prospect, the deterrent prospect, as you rightly put it, um, that if they don't uh, conduct themselves in a certain way and ensure their subsidiaries are conducting themselves lawfully, not perpetrating human rights abuses, that they, they themselves could face litigation in their home jurisdictions. And that's, that's, a, uh, that's a potential game changer. You know, nothing uh, will draw the attention of a board of a multinational company more, um, more significantly than the prospect of really serious litigation, which is both damaging reputationally and also damaging to their bottom line. Uh, and we know, that sh we know that Shell, for example, as a result of the Bodo case, but also parallel litigation which is going on in the Netherlands on the same issue, um, is now has convened a committee of very high-level individuals to consider the impact of all this litigation. Um, and <laughs> uh, that's good. That's good. I mean, Shell is, is for the first time really paying notice, I think, to these um, the issues and the potential liability implications if they don't get their house in order. Well, it's about time because the first, uh, we've you know, been hearing Shell's uh, abuses in the Niger Delta for decades. Uh, it was nineteen ninety. Nine and yeah. the Ogoni, uh, the, when the Ogoni nine and were came to the to the most um, 
prominence for the horrific um, uh, fate that they had, right? So um, I I, I want to ask this question, which is the the a question that I get a lot, both uh, from my students and from external. Uh, people who may not have uh, uh, understanding so much about how a parent company liability uh, works or doesn't work or the, the relationship between um, parent company and uh, subsidiaries. This idea that the UK courts have an interest and should have an interest in applying the law and providing uh, rule of law and providing remedy for the victims. To what extent uh, do we reply to this question, why the UK courts, why do we have to be the savior of um, the the world, quote unquote? You know? um, and it's something that I've been uh, fighting for a long time to try to find a quick uh, and important answer and, and, you know, kind of clear answer because um, in my previous work, for example, in war crimes and, and crimes against humanity, um, I worked a lot with universal jurisdiction and why should con um, courts be available to victims of uh, past mass atrocities? Um, so how did you respond to that? How do you respond? Why is it an interest or or obligation of the UK court to respond to this and and I'd like to hear your yeah good I mean good question um, let's let's be clear what parent company liability is because it's it's absolutely not um, universal jurisdiction um, which arguably was the model of the Alien Claims Tort Act in the United States, which has run into um, very serious problems. The model of parent company's liability is much simpler. It's basically saying that um, a parent company can be liable for the sins of its subsidiary, the harm caused by its subsidiary, if the evidence shows that that parent company has been exercising control or direction or giving advice to that subsidiary in, in ways that are, are directly relevant to what's happened. So let me give you an example. If Shell, uh, sticking with the Shell example, if Shell is issuing guidance and policies to Shell Nigeria about cleanup methodology um, or pipeline security, and Shell Nigeria is implementing those policies and that guidance, and that guidance is wholly flawed. Wrong cleanup methodology, terrible pipeline security, um, awful maintenance, and that's what's causing the problems. Then Shell Nigeria can also, sorry, Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, the parent company, can also be held responsible legally for the failings of its subsidiary. They're both legally liable. It, it's akin to um, a contractor coming in um, and advising um, a company or an individual, look, we think you should sort out, for example, your health and safety problem in the following way and that advice turns out to be completely wrong and harmful that contractor can be held legally liable 
We're simply just applying essentially that, that basic framework of legal liability to group structures. Um, and there's nothing earth shatteringly new about this. I mean, this is what the Supreme Court unanimously said in Vedanta because um, the QC for Vedanta was arguing in the Supreme Court this is an absolutely uh, extraordinary extension of tortious principles of legal liability and the sky is going to fall in and the world of limited liability and the basis of how we conduct business is all going to come to crashing down and the Supreme Court all five of them said absolutely not this is standard just simply applying standard tortious principles within the structure of a corporation um, now that's that's a development of English common law but it means that it will only apply in England to companies that are domiciled here. So it's not as if England is going to be exercising jurisdiction over a Canadian company or a French company. Uh, that's entirely a matter for their legal systems to, de to develop those, the same principles if they um, are persuaded by the way in which the English courts have gone. Uh, and I would just say that a lot of the world um, is common law. Canada, uh, South Africa, uh, Australia, and then a lot of sub-Saharan Africa. So these are all common common law jurisdictions. And the um, the judgments of the English Supreme Court uh, are clearly of persuasive authority. So because we've had this development in the jurisprudence here, it's very likely that um, courts in other common law jurisdictions are going to follow similar um, yeah, well, develop their jurisprudence in the that, same way. That's essential. That's the thing that picks up with um, what uh, Seema was talking <clears throat> before about um, the precedent, what this means for the specific community of that, uh, of that case, but what it could mean for, for many other communities um, that suffer similar um, impact, negative impact, human rights violations and environmental violations, not just impact for uh, their corporate activities. So um, great. I, I love the, yeah, I know now what I'm going to say, which is the sky is not going to fall in. <laughs> So <laughs> the sky's not going to fall in as much as multinational companies would like to us think. to think that yeah, they will. So um, a bit, uh, you know, related with this work, um, the, the litigation work and how, um, in a way, uh, law firms uh, uh, like you sometimes, you know, it, this takes many hours and it's, uh, uh, you know, we wish we could uh, devote our time and our energy to every case of injustice, but in a way you have as well to, to make choices. And, and there are two choices I want to ask you about. Uh, choice number one of like when to choose which litigants you're going to to support and pursue, which which cases you're going to pursue, and and you know how to tell the cases you're not going to pursue and the litigants we know about your suffering, but unfortunately you do not have a strong case in the in the British court because I I might not be able to prove the parent uh, uh, subsidiary liability, parent company liability, and uh, and another important 
question or at least a question that I'm always, uh, um, uh, you know, grappling with is this question of justice versus the um, the best interest of the client. Because obviously, many times, and especially for students who are very passionate about, we need to achieve justice. Getting to the end of the case is might be this, the justice of the symbolic justice for the world as well of like you uh this the the company was uh guilty even though in, in civil there's no guilt but uh you know responsible etc but sometimes you have to decide to settle and to advise your your client that it's better to settle even though they're not going to get a judgment that says <coughs> um specifically what the, it will be in the interest of the wider community, for example. So I'm interested in those two kind of legal uh, and professional at the same time, personal processes of decision-making. Yes. So, I mean, which cases do we choose to take? Uh, I mean, we get approached by lots and lots of different organizations and, and individuals. You'd be unsurprised to hear to see if we can help them. And the truth is, sadly, we can only help a minority of those individuals. We'd love to have the capacity to help them all. Um, what cases we choose to take on are basically those cases which we think are legally liable. And we have to kind of vet them very, very carefully because they are big commitments, these cases. They can last for years, you know, three, four years quite easily. Um, they can often, if you've got an opponent who's intransigent, they can go all the way up to the Supreme Court, <laughs> uh, which takes a long time. And uh, they're risky. They're risky. I mean, in, in certain parts of the world, um, you know, you're talking about instability, uh, political instability, um, security risks, um, all kinds of issues that your average litigator and lawyer would never have to come across on a daily basis. So we take on those cases which we think are viable um, and which we have capacity to take on. Those cases which we cannot take on, we will try and point them in the direction of NGOs who could help with um, soft law claims, a complaint with the OECD guidelines, for example. Um, or a complaint with the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights. <clears throat> and equally, if, it's, if there's not a jurisdiction, if it's not a, an English company, ultimately, if there's not enough against um, the English company, we will be, there's a network of lawyers around the world now that are working on these cases. And so we'll signpost them to you know, our colleagues in Germany or France or still the Netherlands, or Canada, etc who are able to look at these cases. Um, and that, that network is becoming increasingly strong and we're learning from each other. And although there's a lot happening in the UK in this space, there's also a lot happening in, in other jurisdictions as well, which is very exciting. Um, and so we're not alone, we're far from being alone um, in terms of being lawyers who are willing to take these cases on, which is great. Uh, and that's a change from what the position was about 10 years ago, I'd say. Um, in terms of your second question about what do you do if there's a, 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 a potential conflict between the broader justice of a case and your client's best interests. So 
an example would be if your clients have been offered a settlement, which they're keen to take, but you'd be very keen to go to court to get a judgment, which would have wider ramifications. Um, the legal principle is, or principle of professional conduct is absolutely clear that you have to always operate in your client's best interests. There is no choice in the matter. Uh, and if it's your, uh, it would be a cardinal sin not to operate in your client's best interests and could get you struck off ultimately. Um, so we are often faced with situations where uh, cases do settle before trial. And um, sometimes, you know, we have to accept certain terms of settlement that really are not ones that we would be happy to take, but which is clearly in, the, in our client's best interests for us to agree to. Um, so it's actually not a conflict at all, um, although it does sometimes keep me up at night, but the principle is clear. <laughs> yeah. So Dan, uh, um, this is this is what what story you told. Uh, it it looks like one of those um, films you can say. And actually, this is this. My question is two parts. One is that how those kind of films represent a lawyer's life who is fighting against these companies. How accurate that representation is. And the second part is that how you actually first got into. Um, this fight uh, at first place or do you, is, or is there a moment you remember that kind of inspired you so uh, i want to ask have you seen the film called dark dark water and also for the audience if they haven't seen it it's a, it's released in 2019 mark ruffalo yes no i have seen dark water um and it's a great film uh, very very good it's about a case that was taken on by a actually a defendant lawyer who was defending chemical companies and he is approached by someone who lived ne next to his gran, I think, <laughs> in some, some state, in remote state in, in the US. Um, and increasingly it becomes clear that DuPont Chemicals is polluting horrifically all the water systems of the communities that live near his gran and he he essentially um, decides to take DuPont Chemicals on. Spoiler alert, if someone hasn't yeah. seen it. <laughs> Spoiler alert, but I won't, I won't say what happens. I won't say yes, what happens. Yes. So how accurate um, is the, is the I, representation? I thought, I thought that was very accurate um, in just how tough these fights can be and how um, you are faced with unlimited resources um, and often very sharp tactics on the other side mm. who will do everything they can in their power to scupper the litigation. And at the moment, we're dealing with situations where clients are being, of human rights victims are being harassed and um, intimidated in Kenya and in Tanzania um, by the company and by the local authorities to drop the litigation that they brought. Um, and even though there are anonymity orders in place and protections of the clients, they, they, these companies are going after the victims. You know? uh, and that's just, just the kind of thing that you're dealing with. Um, and yeah, I thought that was a good film. I thought it was an accurate representation. Um, with us, it's obviously an international setting, so slightly different. 
Um, and there are different issues, kind of quite complex issues for us to tackle, um, often dealing with uh, unfriendly governments, uh, hostile local authorities, um, political instability, uh, which all adds a further layer of complexity <laughs> to these kinds of cases. Uh, in terms of how I got into this, um, it, it was, it goes back to um, me following out my now wife to uh, Africa when I was a young, when I just qualified as a lawyer. Um, she decided to go and work, work for Oxfam in Congo DRC. Uh, and I decided that I'd follow her out there. And I kind of put off all my, the rest of my legal training to go and do that. And um, I, I was working for a kind of human, legal human rights organization out there. And it was at the time when the war in Congo was raging. And essentially, uh, Uganda, Uganda and Zimbabwe, and in fact, pretty much all the surrounding countries were just it had invaded Congo and were fighting it out for Congo's resources, causing um, millions of deaths. Uh, and all the resources were then being sold through Western multinational companies. <laughs> and no one was doing anything about it. You know, the gold, the diamonds, they were all just being sold on the high street here. You know, and the, meanwhile, in Congo, two million dead. And so that's how I started to really get into um, the whole issues about corporate accountability. And I remember writing to my now colleagues, Martin Day and Richard Mirren from Congo, saying, look, this is what's happening. Can we hold any of the British companies to account who've done this? Uh, and then when I came back to the UK, I then spent the next four years working I mean, I was, a, I was a young barrister going around the country doing you know, bail applications and uh, all kind of jury trials and employment disputes. And, but in part time, I was working um, in my spare time with uh, an amazing lady called Trisha Feeney, who was trying to take on the various companies who were complicit in these war crimes. And she and I and, and others then started to work on bringing cases through the OECD guidelines on multinational enterprises. And um, that whole process um, got me quite um, heavily into business and human rights uh, because I realized that there was such an enormous issue of corporate impunity. And that actually the root cause of so much human misery <laughs> around the world is essentially uh, fueled by that corporate impunity. That um, I essentially became very passionate about bringing cases against multinational companies. It was never the original plan, but that just has kind of emerged from, <laughs> from, from that, those, that string of experiences I had, uh, starting with. Um, Following, following my wife out to Congo. Uh, Dan, 
Uh, well, that, yeah, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm very, um, I think the whole corporate um, uh, accountability movement really uh, thanks your wife for that, uh, pushing you, <laughs> dragging you. But uh, one... Well, she, she's, also, she's also into corporate accountability. Oh. She's running an NGO now uh-huh. and, um, uh, and doing amazing work herself. Oh, fantastic. Um, well, you should have her. Uh, you should, you should. She's, she's much, much more interesting than I am. <laughs> well, I, I, I was, I was going to say, I'm sure not, but I'm sure yes, because, uh, <laughs> not because you're not interesting, but because, um, she is probably an amazing woman, uh, as well. So, uh, one question, um, related a debate that, uh, Seema, Rasa and I have very often, especially in the podcast about, um, whether you consider yourself an activist, because whether the kind of work that you do, you know, the defending human rights, working for human rights. Is, is is this a profession or is it a vocation? Because in what you've explained, there was obviously a vocation in, in you because you when you saw initially when you saw injustice you could identify and then you would want to to work for it. Um, yes, I I, I, I I consider myself to be an activist lawyer. Um, and by that I mean, I'm not, I'm not a campaigner, um, that there are other people that are much better placed to do that work than me, but I do use, try to use the law to advance the rights of others. Um, and I would definitely say that's a vocation, um, which is based on my life experiences, the injustices I've seen and, um, my desire to do what I can to assist in response to that. Um, it's not just a profession. I mean, I've been a professional barrister where I received instructions from, from defendants, from government, from claimants. Um, and this is a very different experience um, that I'm living through professionally because it's, I wake up every morning passionate <laughs> Uh, and fired up about what I do. Um, and uh, that's a very different um, experience to the experience of just kind of taking instructions from a lawyer and doing the best you can for your client, even if you don't believe in them at all. <laughs> and I've been in that position too. Um, but I always believe and always care what my clients have gone through. Um, and I always uh, believe passionately and will fight passionately for them to get some form of remedy and some form of justice. And I, I have to say, um, it really resonated me, with me when you were talking about, so you're, you're uh, sort of seeing for your own eyes when you're in the, in the, um, in the DRC, you know, the impact, I guess, of multinational sort of business operations, you know, that are happening across borders. Uh, I mean, I have to say, um, so I, I mean, probably being of a similar age as yourself, you know, I, I also uh, practiced as a lawyer and, you know, I worked in oil and gas law firm and I, I mm. felt um, you achieved what I failed to achieve because I always wanted to do something to help people and in the field of human rights. But I didn't feel at that time that there was an entry point. So this was like in the late 1990s. 
uh, in Canada early 2000s to really get into doing the type of work that you have actually sort of carved out actually to be honest and and this and this law firm in London which is actually doing so I I just want to make the point that you know I think um, I think and you and you brought this out lawyers lawyers that are practicing lawyers in law firms there is this disconnect you know I think there are lawyers you know, in corporate practice, you want to actually not do the work they're doing or for their corporate clients, make the money that they're making for because they do have this, uh, I guess, moral, uh, they can see, (laughs) I don't know if they put blinders on, but there's a moral incompatibility with the objectives that they're trying to pursue. My question for you is, is that, um, and Mm. I left the practice of law in order to do human rights work. As you know, know, I worked at Amnesty for a number of years, you know, and, you know, doing the business rights work and still continue to do this corporate accountability work. So I left the practice of law in order to to do this. What, um, I guess, what are your views Mm. on those lawyers that are actually in corporate practice, you know, but we actually need to make them activists. I mean, human rights can't be a side hobby or an interest and similar to yourself you said this is something that is important to you how can we make this more central to the work they do including whether it's mergers and acquisitions if it's like you know even that that type of you know or finance law what are your thoughts on this i know it's a bit of a loaded question we don't have that much time but yeah is are are they a lost cause well I, i think the honest answer is it's difficult because um as a defendant lawyer, your again, your responsibility is to always act in your client's best interests. And so if your client is um, saying they want to litigate until hell freezes over and then skate on it, um, that is what you have to do. And you have to come up with the legal arguments, however flimsy <laughs> and however um, disingenuous. <laughs> to make that happen. Um, I suppose what would be good would be for lawyers to have a deeper understanding of the broader business and human rights framework. Um, The UNGPs, the OECD guidelines. Um, So, you know, they're not just engaging in black letter law, but they can advise their clients, look, if you do a certain thing, you know, we can argue this for you, but you need to be aware that that completely runs against your commitments under the UNGPs, and you're vulnerable to very severe criticism if you do that. Yeah, and I would like, I would hope that in the future, more lawyers would be aware of the broader business and human rights um, framework that's developed over the past 20 years. Because at the moment, you know, I think they, they, they have very little knowledge of it. Uh, and those that do don't see it as something that um, you you pay lip service to but it has no real consequences yeah I mean I I totally agree and I think there needs to be a culture change which is what you're saying you know to to practice and and actually when you go through law schools like I do human rights should be a mandatory class as I had to take tax law it should also be you know sort of human rights law and and perhaps they shouldn't be seen as separate classes but more integrated in terms of you know when you are actually studying corporate law when you are actually studying tax law when you are actually studying these elements to actually consider the impacts on people and the planet 
And I think this is a real failing as to how, how sort of law schools themselves have been designed. Yeah. So, so yeah, in our activist capacity, Dan, <laughs> calling on you and Olga and Reza, we, we need to tackle this. And, and I feel change it, you know, as, as one way, because lawyers are service providers. We are, we are enabling companies to basically be carrying out these destructive yeah. activities. You know, we need to, as service providers, really tackle the profession itself. And I know these are topics that have come up with the International Bar Association and these types of elements, but I would love to see sort of more um, proactive work being done in this. And of course, Olga is an academic, you know, and one who teaches international human rights law and business and human rights, I'm sure favors this. And um, I mean, in the interest of time, and it's such an interesting conversation, um, and I'm so grateful that you brought up Trisha Feeney because she's a real pioneer in this space. She um, is. You know, I think, you know, yeah, and I, and I wanted to say, um, you know, we sort of opened up with, yeah, you know, this relationship between sort of legal actions and human rights. And, you know, for me, um, you know, just personally speaking, you know, I, I had a conversation, um, you know, while I was at Amnesty, I spoke to one of my colleagues who was supporting the widows of the Ogoni Nine, mm. you know, who, you know, in the, the case that's being pursued in the Netherlands right now. And she was working a lot with the widows of the men who were executed. And um, she essentially said to me that, you know, the widows felt so such a sense of justice by being able to say their story in court. And for me, that really resonated and was a feeling of, yes, you know, there, there is real importance to bringing these cases. So I just wanted to say from my side, that was really meaningful to actually hear that and really powerful. And, and actually one of those ladies, she actually now lives in Winnipeg, which is where I am now in Winnipeg, Canada. <laughs> and when I met her, it was really at the front end of bringing that action. And I spoke with her and she just felt like this was a chance for her to have some form of justice. So it's very powerful, and, and, and I want to thank you so much for being here. And, and as we close up, just, I mean, maybe really quickly, what, what's next on your agenda? Well, we are waiting for um, a Supreme Court decision in another Shell case. Um, this time Shell have argued uh, vociferously for years now that they can have no legal liability for what goes on in Nigeria. And we will see if the Supreme Court um, uh, essentially applies the Vedanta principle and agrees that they are legally liable. If so, um, that's a big deal because it does mean that Shell are potentially going to be finally held to account on a quite a broad scale for what they've done in Nigeria. Um, and that will be a big moment. And there's a similar case going on in the, in the Netherlands where Shell is also registered. Um, so that's going to be a major um, part of what's going of the agenda going forward for the year to come and potentially for quite a few years but there are lots of other cases as well but that's going to be the big one yeah well from my side thank you so much dan for being here and um yeah yeah and it's been a pleasure to speak with you been a huge pleasure definitely thank you for the work you do and uh, we we will keep watching uh, what's happening at the Supreme Court and what's happening in all the other cases. And um, it's, it's, as Seema said, real privilege. 